Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P dot com. Thanks. Hi everybody, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week we have Jim Cragg with us, and he's incredibly interesting and kind and learned man, and he's friends with my parents, and I recently got to know him better and could not wait to have him on the podcast. So, Jim, welcome to the show. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And thank you for making time for us. We usually ask three questions right away. How old are you? Where did you grow up? And then what generation, if any, do you consider yourself a member of? I'm 72 now. I grew up in Central California, and mostly in a town called Stockton, California, which is in the Stockton Valley. But I considered, um, my father grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, so we made trips over there, so I considered us to be kind of a satellite of San Francisco, and uh, generations I consider myself from. Well, I'm a child of the 50s and 60s, so I went to school in San Francisco. I used to cut school sometimes in high school and go over to demonstrations in San Francisco State College. I ended up eventually going to school there, so there was a lot going on during the late 60s and 70s in San Francisco, Bay Area, and the world in general. Yeah. And it, it was an exciting time that I was born way too late for, but reading about, I always was jealous. Um, although, now that I've seen conflict between government and activism, I'm, I'm not so sure if I should have been jealous and envious, because uh, it seems like it was as nasty back then as it is now. You know, I grew up in California from 1981, or like, 19, I, I was there from 1984 till about 2009. Um, how much do you think the Bay Area of California has changed since the time you were a child through now? I think it's probably quite different, but it still acts as one of the leaders of the world. When you look back historically, just like now, I had a friend that went recently to to Florence, Italy, and, you know, that was a very major connection point in Europe during that period of time. San Francisco and the Bay Area is going to be seen historically as one of the very important hubs of growth of consciousness and industry. And so it's had a huge effect. And it, it's a, and one of the reasons is because it's got a melting pot. People from the Orient and Asia, people from South America, people from all over the world have ended up there. And there's something I sort of jokingly think about is, you know, if you go to some places, you know, like say Italy, if you go to Italy for food, you have an Italian food. If you go to San Francisco for food, it's, it's universal food. It's an amalgamation of, of many, many countries. And the architecture and, and the life the lifestyle, it's, a, it's an amalgamation. So it's, a, it's an important hub for growth and change in our culture. That's cool. And I appreciate and uh, respect your answer a lot. And I worked downtown on Market Street for almost 10 years as a teacher and vice principal at an international language school and uh it it definitely felt like an international city every day when i was there and i remember my students saying the same thing that they were just blown away by the multiculturalism so um, i'm glad to hear that because i think uh san francisco in particular gets a pretty bad reputation right now and i think it deserves some of it you know i think that some of the policies are a little strange to those of us who like you know believe in uh stopping theft, for example, and things like that. But at the same time, I also feel like there's still that 
that hub of what you spoke about and that real actual international multiculturalism and, and spirit. And you think of the South Bay area. Mm-hmm. And what, that's where cell phones came from, internet came from, basically. And different things that totally affect our life. Laptop computers, desktop computers, there's so much that came out of that area. Huge melting pot of creativity and, and growth and consciousness. Yeah, it's cool. You know, I haven't really thought about it, but like, the internet and the Grateful Dead, like so many cool things. <laughs> like, uh, it's a lot of mixed uh, things. And um, I didn't mention this in the introduction because I was gonna wait until later to get there, but it actually kind of feels appropriate right now. Um, a lot of your career, you spent, you did hypnotic regression into previous lives, and um, you've even uh, dabbled in mediumship and all that. Um, before we get into the second part. Can you tell me about hypnotic regression, like the science behind it? It's still a controversial thing in the scientific field, certainly. Ian Stevenson, do you know that name? He's, a, he's one of the earlier researchers on children who recall past lives. His first book came out in 1966. He was one of the chairs at the University of Virginia, where I went to did my training and, in psychiatry. And... You know, I asked him one time. I, I had some hypnotic regression with, with Brian White in 1993 or four. And it was a very profound experience for me, so I went and talked to Ian about it. And he was aware of it, but he was sort of skeptical of it because he knew that the brain was so creative. We can, we, our dreams seem so real, for instance. And he wasn't sure that he was a little... Um, distant from it. But I nevertheless feel that it's a very valid approach. And when used appropriately, it can be making great changes in people's lives. Um, but I think the thing that I do agree with them on is just because a person is regressed and has an experience, that's no validation that that was a real previous life that they had. It may be. And, and but if it helps them feel better and get better, that's one thing. The other thing that's, I think, an interesting thing to put out there is some people get kind of carried away with it. I wasn't a very good student in college. I would be in my economics class and be studying chemistry, or I would be in another class and studying something else. We're in this life, and we should be paying full attention to this life and dabbling excessively in past life. Is, is like it's not paying attention to the class we're in. And so if it's used sparingly to just help get our bearings from the broad view of what we're trying to learn now, then I think it's useful and important. But excessively relying on it for guidance is probably a mistake. Wow, I've I've never heard the answer stated so succinctly and profoundly. Um, I had one other guest who did it who said, it very differently. And she said it was just based on talking to the people. She started to realize that it wasn't really helping a lot of them and it was only helping a few. And that either way, the average person said my biggest regret in my past life was not living more of that life. So it's interesting. That's a really cool thing to think about. Do you think a person should think about reincarnation as they go through life? Or do you think it, it's entirely unimportant? There's no right answer for that. Some people, for instance, certain Christians or other religions are not interested in it. And it will not, by not believing in it or not being with it, will not slow their evolution. People that really are into it, if, if you're told, no, don't think about it, 
if they're very interested, that would maybe, if it helps them feel there's, there's much more going on than just this life, that's the key factor, I think. I studied a lot the Course in Miracles, and there's, it's in three sections. One is a, a, a text, and there's a workbook, and the last series of questions and answers. And there's one question there, is reincarnation real? And they pointed out that it, 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 in, in an ultimate sense, no, it's not real, because we're not, we're never a body. We're absolutely always pure consciousness and unbounded. So we have the, the delusion or the illusion that we fit into a body. We don't fit into a body. We use this body as a learning experience. But we get so identified with the body and the story of this life that we forget. And so if we, if we end up paying too much attention to these different stories and these reruns, it's a waste of time. But if we can use it to point out that we're much more than this body, we're free and we're still united with our absolute self, capital S self, then I think it's a useful concept to, to, to perceive and think about. That's cool. That's very cool. Um, I knew before this interview started that I would have way too many questions to ask you and not enough time um, because you just have, and this is what I told you this in person, but um, or at least in an email, you have a calmness to you. It's, it's palpable in person and I feel it even on this phone call. It's just a calmness. It's not a certainty. It's not an arrogance. It's not a, um, it, it's nothing I could describe except a calmness. It comes from years of meditation. I learned transcendental meditation in 1970. Okay. It's an interesting story. I was going to summer school at Stanford, and I wanted to grow. I had this sense I wanted to be growing more internally. And so I noticed this course on hypnosis. They had quite a department for that there. And so I went, and I actually was very impressed with what I saw, and I paid my $35 or $45, whatever it was. And then that same night, I saw a poster for a lecture on transcendental meditation. And I felt extremely drawn to that. And I went to the lecture, and I knew I had to learn that, but I didn't have much money, so I went back and got a loose pump and, and paid for learning transcendental meditation, which was only then $35 or $45. And, and I, I knew by the fourth night of the instruction that I wanted to learn to teach it. It just seemed so sound and clear. And by meditating twice a day, at least twice a day since 1970, that's really helped me get calm. It's been a very, very big improvement. I certainly still have periods of times of agitation or I'll relapse into some sort of fear state. But... It, by experiencing this, the parasympathetic response and tuning my body to knowing that, feeling very, very intimately, it's been measurably help, helpful to me. That's incredible. So I think uh, my first immediate question, because I also do Transcendental Meditation, is I am equally aware of the space you're talking about and how calming that is. Um, when you get agitated, do you use meditation like to immediately address it like the same way a person might you know an addict might go straight to like the substance they're addicted to when they're agitated or do you have to deal with the agitation just like everyone else and then you just meditate when you can i don't go to meditate i usually stick to just twice a day there's no problem with it like you've had a car wreck or some sort of really big trauma you could take another meditation to calm yourself down that's certainly available but what i find is by just by being aware of it and then doing what I call a pivot and, and 
you know, I, I can put my attention on what's working instead of what's not working. You know, we can be encountering a, 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 a we like the garden, for instance. And you can go into a garden and there's so many beautiful things, but it's not uncommon for people to find some weed or some some claw, some mess on the ground. We have that tendency within our lives, so many of us, to look for the negative, to find it easily, therefore. But what I learned was, when I'm aware of that I'm having difficulty, what I learned to do is I pivot my attention just towards something that's peaceful, something that's beautiful, something that I can appreciate or be grateful for. And just like smoke, the, the fear or the anxiety starts to clear up. That's incredible. Yeah. I think a lot of Americans aren't patient enough when it comes to what we're talking about. And yet they seem to think no matter what, there has to be like a quicker, faster, better way. How do you help people who are impatient? Because like I have so many friends who just say, I cannot meditate. No matter how much I try, I just can't do it. I can't stand it. Do you have any advice for that? Yes, use a different technique. <laughs> Meditation is very difficult. That's what people taught for centuries. It's difficult. It's only for the few. It's only for the recluse. It's only for the people that have great patience. And what Maharishi came in 1955 to say is that's baloney. Is is an approach for the householder and is an approach for the sannyasi or the recluse. And the way for the householder is you do this and you do this technique. And as you found, and as I've taught many people, it's very easy. Even people that have great difficulty with their usual types of meditation find that this is easy, which doesn't mean it's a slackered meditation. You know, that's what some people have to say, oh, if it's easy, it must be a waste of time. It should be difficult. But think about the analogy of if, if, if you go into a river with a canoe and there's some current, and you start rowing against the current, paddle, 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 you think that's what you're supposed to do in life. But if you finally get tired and you just put down your paddle, the canoe just gently turns around and starts to go with the flow. There's no strain, no struggle. Too much of our life, we're going against the current of well-being and joy in our life. And what you need is just to learn the right angle. And with meditation, you learn that very easily. But there's other techniques. I'm not self-promoting, but I, I, my friend and I have been writing a book called Positive Psychology Interventions for Anxiety and Depression. We present 23 simple interventions people can use that if they learn to practice them and get used to using them, given the habit of using them, their life gets much better. And we don't need to feel that anxiety, but everybody gets it from time to time. And I use the example here, I use, I think, an example is if you live in a house and cook food there, you have a mess in your kitchen. It's just what happens. And in our lives in general, what happens is things get messy sometimes. That's just part of living. And the technique is to keep the dishes clean, keep ahead of the mess. You know, it doesn't have to be a big burden. You can just do them after each meal, so to speak. And so the same when you have traumas or anxieties or bills that are too big or whatever eats away at you. You can learn techniques of how to regain your balance and regain your flow of that river of well-being. That's, that's incredible. I've found that a lot of people are now saying, I have chronic anxiety, I have chronic depression, and I'm not making fun of that, and I'm not trying to be uh, smart or sassy, but I do often wonder, is labeling yourself as someone who has like a chronic problem also going to kind of make it so it's a problem? Like, Wouldn't it be a better idea 
to just say what you kind of just said, which is I currently have anxiety, I currently have depression, or do you think there are some people who really do need to know that they suffer from this? Well, they certainly suffer from it, and they certainly have it. You know, it's like a GPS. For a GPS to work, you need to know, it needs to sense where you are, and you have to put in where you want to go. If you pretend you're somewhere else than where you are, it's not going to be giving you very good directions. So if you pretend I'm calm, I'm calm, I'm calm, and you're anxious, that's baloney, right? So you have to realize and accept, yeah, I'm anxious. But the GPS never, ever, ever will ask you, how did you get here? How long has it taken you to get to this spot? Why did you go the route you go? No, it just senses where you are and where you want to go and starts giving you directions how to get there. So if somebody's anxious, but where they got there is, here these four simple points. Whatever we think about affects how we feel, right? Two, there are thoughts. Three, we can learn, emphasize learn, to change what we think about. And four, we get better at whatever we practice. Now, people that are chronically anxious or chronically depressed have, are really good at thinking thoughts that lead them to be anxious and depressed. That's not making fun of it. It's just that's what they've learned to do. They've learned to find the, the broken glass instead of all the beautiful things. They've learned to, you know what I mean? It's, it's a habit. And some people are just masters of it. You know, it's like... Just that. So the, the, the approach that I recommend is for people to learn skills, to learn ways to approach changing what we think about. Because we can. There are thoughts. We can change what we think about. Little by little, we get more, and the more practice we have, the more well-being we would have. Or the other way around, the more you practice worry and anxiety, the more worried and anxious you're going to be. So if somebody... It's chronically, I ran into somebody the other day, she's finding some help and dealing with her depression. And the way she started the session was to pull out some Kleenex because she assumed I was going to try and help her cry and be upset. <laughs> and look back on everything, she was a little disappointed. At one point, she said, don't you want to hear my past? I said, no, not really. I want to hear where you want to go. And I want to see where you are right now and how we can get there. You know, like the GPS analogy. And too often people want to just harp over and over and over again their woes and worries and pains and problems. It's a waste of time. It's worse than a waste of time because it's destructive to life. It's not that it's not useful sometimes to understand where you came from, but only to understand where you are right now so you can get your bearings on where you want to go. Wow. Jim, you're so smart and you're so eloquent. I'm so happy to be on the phone with you and asking questions and getting these answers. Thank you. That was amazing. Um, we always ask guests, what do you think happens when you die? And I feel like now is a decent time to ask that. But I also want to make sure to mention that I do plan on asking you about, and I'm going to totally mispronounce the name, Teilhard de Chardin and the No Sphere and Human Evolution. So I just want to let you know that we're still going to talk about that. But I would like to take this space right now to ask you, what do you think happens when you die? Hey everybody, did you know that I write novels? Well I do, and I have a new one out, and it's called Ardor, and it's about a world-famous psychic traveling around trying to stop other psychics from ruining everything on Earth. It's a fun read, a ton of people have already read it and loved it, so head over to MikeyOp.com, click the big link, and get your copy today. Thanks a lot. Well, first of all, I don't think anybody dies. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> That's the first thing. There's a nice uh, thing... Um, Schwartz, a professor in psychology at the University of Arizona, 
they coined this term PMP, post material person. He, he's done a lot of research on mediumship and on those sorts of things, and he's conclusively shown that it's valid for skilled medium. And, and that, we're, that the person lives on, no question about it. And so he said, post material persons. It's a nice way to say it. So one of the things I've come to learn, it's, it's more of an increasingly a nod of than a belief, is who we are doesn't end. We keep, we keep going, we keep going, we change. You know, it's like that analogy is, and you've probably heard it before, it's like you go to school and you have a class question that you're with in grammar school, for instance, and you see the same guys, and then there's a summer break, then you come back, and there's some of the same faces, some new faces, and then another year you have a summer break. It's sort of like life to life, we keep living. We take on new tasks, we take on new personalities. We're often with the same individuals, but we trade forms. Sometimes one's a husband, sometimes one's a a brother, one, you know, you love you change sexes, so you get used to that. Change races, you change social stations in life, so you really get a rounded experience for life. We're here to experience knowledge, and we're gaining knowledge from experiences of extreme opposites. And so we didn't come here to have an easy time, we came here for challenges. And we get attracted to the people that we think, oh, if I hadn't been for my father or mother, I'd be different. Yeah, but that was the class you signed up for. Mm-hmm. And it's something you're learning and wanted to learn. And so they're, they're sometimes abuse and neglect or problems or healthiness or helpfulness. It's something we signed up for to learn. And and the point is to learn it. Because if we don't learn it, we keep coming back. It's a very patient school. <laughs> I love it. Um, it's so funny because it's just so hard to like take that when you grow up in a culture that teaches you this Disney movie narrative that no, 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 you should like, dream of something, get it, and then you'll live literally, quote unquote, happily ever after. And yet all evidence that I see through my eyes, my ears and everything else tells me that's not true at all. No one lives happily ever after. Everyone lives. And some people seem to be happier than others. But like you're saying, a lot of that is what they're focusing on. Are they focusing on how happy they are? Are they focusing on how horrible their childhood was? What they're trying to learn, that's the most important question, I think, or an important question. What am I trying to learn from that? Isn't this interesting? Instead of, oh, no, isn't that interesting? What am I trying to learn about this? It's an entirely different approach. And the other thing is, people get resentment towards their family or friends or their spouse or whatever. What I've learned, I have this saying, never waste a good resentment. It's a very valuable teaching tool because what you're seeing is a projection of what you're trying to learn. It's so much easier to see the faults of others than to see our own. And so by by never wasting a good resentment, you would think about it. What am I bothered about? What am, what's upsetting me? Not just be judgmental as all get out and just list it down and think. And then when you're done listing all the words, it usually gets to be three or four words with synonyms. And you hold that up to look at yourself and see, do I have any of those qualities? I've always found that I inevitably do. Even at first, I don't think I'm nothing like that. And then when I really look at the qualities that I'm getting upset by, I, of course, do. I almost always do. And in the 12-step programs, they have this nice thing is that if, if you're pointing a finger at somebody, there's three pointing back at you. I love that statement. It's, it's a very nice idea. 
Yeah. So I, you know, people say, don't be so judgmental. I said, be judgmental because it makes me feel okay. Don't just be judgmental and leave it there. Make your judgments and then, and then use them to grow on yourself. I find that the tutored lessons, when I get upset with somebody for pulling in front of me, that's an example of me doing that to other people that I'm not really aware of. It's anything like that. You can use it to grow. That's great. And I, I definitely agree. And I agree with gritted teeth, but I agree. Like, I, I don't like to admit it. And it takes a lot of effort sometimes to admit that I'm judging the thing that I see in me. But yeah, no, it's 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 great advice. And so I am curious, um, because you talked about lessons and how you have to look at everything as a lesson. And what am I supposed to learn from it? Um, you've been diagnosed with Parkinson's. Do you how do you in your mind see that as a lesson? Well, one of the things that I'm seeing about that is that I did an actual hypnotic regression to, with a woman to, to see if I could figure out what in heck I'm trying to learn by this. Because intellectually, I couldn't really figure it out. I had some hypotheses. But in one previous life, the first one I came up on, I think that I was a doctor in, during, in, like in Flanders in the Netherlands during one of the plagues in like 13 or 1400s. And doctors were kind of know-it-alls. You know, there's this joke about and deities. And, and, you know, and so doctors get to be that way. And in that life, I was one of those know-it-all sort of guys. And then I came up against something like this, this plague, bubonic plague, that I had nothing experienced with. Because they, they would come every, you know, they would go in cycles of sometimes a couple hundred years. And so I didn't have any training in that or understanding about it, and I'd never seen it before. And it was devastating. People were dying like crazy. My own family was dying. And I felt overwhelmed and, and, and pain from that because I felt like I was a failure. So one of the main lessons learned from that is that I'm not the doctor, so to speak. I'm not the one that causes the cure. I can help guide people towards that, but it's, it's source, it's God, it's all, you know, it's... it's, it's Whatever term one wants to use for that higher power, that's who's doing the curing. So I came, I brought that into this life where I felt I'm a doctor again. I felt this need to be in charge and know how to do things. And 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 when I was working with the veterans clinic, you know, my most recent work about ten years at the end of before I retired, I diagnosed. I have boards in psychiatry and neurology. I diagnosed a lot of people with Parkinson's, and. Interestingly enough, I, I somehow became more overwhelmed and concerned about them than people that had heart problems or cancer. And I think that what happened was I, I would start seeing them as bodies. And as we see others, we see ourselves. And so I was seeing myself through them, seeing them as vulnerable, helpless, overwhelmed. And it's like I needed to learn what to do with that feeling. And so I'm working on that. And... So that's one thing. The other thing, I, one previous slide I'm not going to bother to take the time to go into, where I'm kind of a different one, where I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't know how to accept help. Mm. And I, I shied away from people and hid away from my ailments, which were notable. And so I think it's also a lesson in learning how to, like today I was at, the, at this place in my pickup truck. I couldn't open the back door. It, it was it, and I had to ask the guy to help. He gladly came over and helped. Then, without even asking me, I couldn't get him to stop helping me unload the whole bed of the truck. So it's like I'm needing to learn how to accept help and to see myself as not a body at all, but just using this body as a vehicle to learn for my soul self to learn. 
Wow, that was that was a really great answer, and uh, I am a fellow, I have a lot of trouble asking for help, and I've recently had COVID and a lot of other illnesses, and I've just been, like, refusing help, and uh, that was a huge wake-up call for me, so thank you. You just reached a spot in me that is very hard for people to reach. I would love to ask, before we close things out here, about your long-standing interest in the work of Teilhard de Chardin and the Noosphere and human evolution and how these relate to consciousness. Teilhard de Chardin was a Jesuit priest who died in 1955. He's really one of the most influential thinkers, in my opinion, of the, of the 20th century. He coined the term Noosphere, N-O-O-S-P-H-E-R-E. We're all part of life. So life came on the geosphere, the geosphere developed the biosphere, the biosphere developed the noosphere. The Earth is like one body, and and what's coming out is that humans are like cells in the brain of Earth. We're the nervous system for Earth, and the heart cells as well, the feeling centers. And so what's occurring is a change in evolution that has never occurred before. It's all part of the growing part of the nature. When we look around and see life, we, you know, it's all part of nature. So the, the part of the nature is the laws we have, the, the social structure we have, the inventions we have. Think of those like fur on a bear or, you know, eyes on a uh, eyes on an eagle. And it's the earth growing and evolving. So a geologist picking away on the earth is the earth looking at itself. Or an astronomer looking out in a telescope or, or looking at pictures back on Earth through the, through the uh, satellites is the Earth contemplating itself. When, when we're, it's a very different way of looking at it. And I find it to be very, very uh, positive because what's occurring is we're not at the death of, of life or humanity. We're at the birth. When a new species comes up, can often live for a couple million years or more. And so we've only just recently come out. We're very new, new babe in the woods here, and babies crap on themselves, and that's what humans are doing. <laughs> if, if we don't get it together, we're going to have some problems. There's no probability we're going to make it, obviously. But life has not evolved to extinguish itself. It's going through a phase right now, and we're in a phase of increasing consciousness and collectivity. And so I find it very positive. Jim, I, I absolutely love that. I'm going to start reading about it and looking it up, and uh, I've never heard it, and that is such a great way to look at everything. Um, the thing that I focus on the most that is negative, that really affects me, is is the environment and pollution and the devastation that I see around me, and so I've, I feel hugely uplifted by what you just said, because uh, maybe it's not too late to get a better diaper, or to use a better metaphor, stop using diapers since they're terrible for the environment. Um, I love nothing more than to give my guests the last word. So uh, what would you like to say to the people who listen to this friendly podcast? I have great optimism for the future. I think we're in a wonderful transition point where more and more people are leaning towards seeing things more holistically, more evolutionarily, more kindly. And so I think there's great hope for the planet. And people's worry about the environment is a sign that it's going to start correcting, increasingly correcting. So that's good. So everybody should maximize their own individual potential and, 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 and work to improve the life of themselves and other people.
I, I could not agree more. And uh, thank you again, Jim, for taking time to come on my show. You're a wonderful man. You're, you're a wonderful husband and a wonderful father. And you have so much going on. And I took so much positivity from this interview. So thank you. To everyone listening at home, you've been listening to another episode of Coffin Talk, interviews with the living. My name is Mike Oppenheim. And the best way to support the show is just to head over to MikeyOp.com. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. And sign up for the package. Um, thank you to everyone listening. Thank you extra, extra, extra to Jim Craig, and I will see you soon.